0: Hi, and welcome to Ethnographic Imagination Basel, a series on reimagining the world from the mundane. My name is George Pomeu, and in this episode, we will be talking about listening, how um, to attend to what others say, not so much to respond, but in order to understand. Our guest is Mwendan Tarangui, who has explored questions of listening, but also perception and its engagement in knowledge production across his work in Kenya and the USA and most recently in an anthropological journal piece um, um, in The How. So stay tuned for a conversation on how learning to listen may help us reimagine the world. Mwendan Tarangui is a cultural anthropologist who has taught in the USA and Kenya and is currently working with the National Defense University in Kenya. He is author of numerous books, including Gender Identity and Performance, Understanding Swahili um, Cultural Realities Through Songs, published in 2003, East African Hip Hop, Youth Agency in the Context of Contemporary Globalization, published in 2009, Reversed Gaze, an African ethnography of American anthropology, published in 2010, and The Street is My Pulpit Hip Hop and Christianity in Kenya in 2016. These are just a few of numerous titles. Our conversation today will focus on his recent article, Listening to Disrupt Ethnographic Representations, published in the anthropological journal How, but also on his longer interest in orality, music, language. And knowledge production. A warm welcome to you Mwenda, it's a pleasure to have you on Ethnographic Imagination Basin. Thank you, George, for having me. Let me just start with the question of what is listening? How do you think of this mode of perception? Um, And how do you come to think of it and take it seriously? Um, Not just necessarily as an anthropologist for other anthropologists, but also as a mode of building citizens, good citizens. Um, Thank
1: you. Listening for me entails a relationship. It's a relationship where you truly value what the other person is saying and why they're saying it. In today's world, we are risking the loss of that kind of relationship because there's so much noise, uh, noise uh, from multiple sources, and also noise from distorted realities. But when you sit down as an anthropologist, what you want to do is to look at life from the perspective of the person who's living it. If you don't listen, you will not hear them. And if you listen carefully, you might be even derailed in what you had assumed about the person. And hopefully in that way, you're able to reconstruct and remodel any ideas you had about the person, about the culture, about the place. And it is always good to see listening as something that is coming from both ways because many times we answer questions based on what we think the person wants to hear. And if there's some power uh, distancing, there's some power struggle, there's some power uh, differences, we as anthropologists go into a place where people are already expecting certain things from us and therefore they give us what we want to hear and therefore we carry that with us but if you go in as learners completely seeking to know from them and moving away from what i would call the questionnaire strategy where you already formed questions and you come with them and have be have an opportunity to be generative it's 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 a good strategy Listening also um, goes with what we see in many places where people say, oh, I feel you. So it's even more than just the auditory. It's the emotional. And that connection, oh, I feel you, means a lot to a person because you are connecting at a very deeper human level. And for citizenship, it means almost... um, Lifting your idea of belonging to one specific place and allowing others to belong with you in multiple places. And I think that allows anthropologists, ethnographers to see people from those perspectives rather than belonging in one place or them and us, which has become very, very uh, problematic these days of ultra-nationalism and uh, kinds of things that we're seeing where nations are feeling like them, and it is them who are giving us trouble.
0: So you're already pointing to the fact that there are so many ways to listen in a way. In a way, everybody's listening. We listen to music, we listen to the news, we listen passively, sometimes we listen actively, um, but not all ways of listening carry the same value, importance or transformative potential. Mm -hmm. And then you're pointing to something in anthropology, um, and in ethnography in particular, um, how do we open our ethnographic imagination to decenter ourselves by listening in a particular way? And in the article uh, that you've written, you also point out that anthropologists have also not listened um, in the right kinds of yes. ways. Yes. Um, but they also have the potential to listen. Yes. Right? They do. They do. And they have not
1: listened because um, anthropology as an ecosystem has certain expectations. Uh, I did some look around where I looked at all the book covers of anthropology books. And as much as we try to de-exoticize others, book publishing is also still an entity in itself that wants to continue with that kind of exoticizing. And so we might be listening, but sometimes we are within certain structures that, allow us not to be as powerful enough to shape the narrative what that might do and has has now started happening is that we have alternative ways of presenting our work and i want to imagine that if we use our work through media that will allow our interlocutors to access it then we can tell if we are really listening because they will say hey George, that's not what I told you. I thought I said this. How did you end up with this? Of course, we don't want to become just mouthpieces of what people are saying. We have that interpretive uh, ability, but we want to approximately, what would they have wanted to say about this aspect? Which comes with the true listening, listening that takes you back and say, "Um, I heard you say this, am I right? Which is not something that we do a lot, because, uh, of course, we don't bring back the manuscripts to our people and say, "Hey, yeah. this is what I've written about you. What do you think?" It's very rare. I mean, there are some pe- people who are doing that, but it's very rare. So that kind of listening is important.
0: And the imagined audiences then are different, right? Yes. You don't imagine your interlocutors as part of your audience. Yes. Uh, and doing so would presuppose opening up the ways to yes. listen we yes. should tell our audience that um, you also think of listening broadly to also entail reading yes. and you just pointed out to the the the, no, the notion of the book so a book compiles mm-hmm. um summaries and analysis of various kinds of listening but it also participates as a commodity in a regime that packages it yes. uh in ways that can be very problematic and there things get a bit more complicated because then i think we can listen in a way for certain surface appearances, um, keywords uh, where the packaging happens, or there's also a deeper listening in reading. You know, when you, you open a book and you read it closely, um, can we think of that as a way, uh, somehow paralleling what you just said about how do we listen to our interlocutors um, yes. um, in a way that would make them recognize themselves in what we've heard? Yes, and 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 when you
1: talk about uh, books having certain expectations, it's very very true because the language of the books is not the language of the everyday. Mm. Culture cannot be packaged. In fact, uh, what happens in in the field when we're in the field is that we see one thing today. We think, oh, that. Represents certain characteristics of a culture. And then the next day, the same, same person is doing something totally the opposite. But how do we fit that within the structure of a book that has formality, that has systems, that have structure? It's very difficult. So when we read the book um, or when we write books, that aspect of... Anthropologist taking us to that place. I, I want to. I want to tell you that I have always shared the story of Clifford Geertz, uh the 1973 book, The Balinese Cockfight. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a classic because it gives you a sense as a reader that you are there. You can even see the street that he's running in. You can see the the party, the the rice parties, and the people pretending not to know him because of the way he has written it so there's a way in which in your language the kinds of things you choose allow you to capture the reality of the place the people the time and what's going on In the same way you can use language to distort i mean yeah. you read uh, we used to use the the piece nasirema yes and the language makes exoticizes American culture to an extent where Americans don't recognize themselves in there.
0: We should tell our audience that Nasirema is basically America spelt the other way around, yes. um, yeah. and confusing students. You're right yes. about that. Yes. The students are very confused and suddenly don't recognize themselves, not knowing that that's the U.S. Yes. Um, and this is you teaching in the U.S. Yes. in this context, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, they so don't recognize themselves. They don't recognize themselves
1: because of the language that has used, been used. So listening as reading allows us to recognize and be in tune with the language that is used by the writer. And the writer is able, no matter what culture, what place, what audience he's writing for, as long as they have a grasp of the language used, they can enter into that space and understand it and feel it the way we do in in auditory uh, listening.
0: So to go back to the question of when we're raising, when you are raised this this question of the importance of listening and how we listen, this is a context as you already hinted to that um, um, in which many people are desiring certainty, and certainty is not necessarily given by ambiguous, complex, indefinite statements, but by clear, decisive, lines um, when, um, for example, social media and reality television um, is producing a cacophony of of voices that no longer have to be in conversation with one another. They just need to express uh, um, themselves. Um, And when, um, as you also pointed to, fake news um, and the kind of commodification of truth um, itself becomes common. Um, So does listening in this context presuppose a certain kind of relearning how to listen?
1: Mm. If we go into that question of social media and fake news, you realize they're tapping onto that gap that has been put there through the kinds of social distancing that has happened where we don't listen well to each other. We don't have time. And uh, we are becoming less comfortable with silence. We're becoming less comfortable with alternative modes of knowing and doing and being. And so they can come up with sound bites that respond to that idea that we are yearning for, which can only be found with deep listening, careful articulation of things and over time. But because we don't have that, we'll sell you these little trinkets that keep you always wanting more and more and more. Of course, it it perpetuates the idea of I want more and more and more. But you can imagine if you sit down. uh, I have a friend who says, if you go to a movie, don't leave just as the movie ends. Stay until all the credits are done because it's part of the movie. Those are the people that were there. You can imagine if we were listening to a movie as part of our watching, we would want to know who was who where was it done by who when which credits it takes much more time you've already seen the entire you know plot and episode but when you stay in you honor the process when we listen deeply we honor the process we honor the person and we're not looking for sound bites because sound bites are for us
0: and they're instantly gratifying yes
1: oh. us but are they gratifying the people we're listening to that's, yeah. a, that's that's that's. Exactly. I think that's a
0: difference. Exactly. So the question of of time uh, and patience against this kind of instant gratification through soundbites becomes important. Mm-hmm. And this is also speaking of a certain kind of embodied relearning. Yeah. It's not just about listening per se, but you also talk um, in throughout your article about the story behind the story. Yes. It's not just what is being said what goes with it, um, you talk about the unspoken, mm-hmm. as important as the spoken mm-hmm. in the constitution of a certain kind of, of um, message. Um, how do we attend I think, this level?
1: I think the unspoken gives anthropology a chance because the, the key things about anthropology, unlike many other disciplines, although some are trying to do that, is that it takes the context, it takes the comparative analysis. It takes what you said today, what you said yesterday, what was said by someone else who is, who is close to you and brings those together to speak to each other. It takes that context, that comparison and the holistic, you know, I want to see you in different po- uh, parts of your life because you're not just the person sitting across from me. You've also been on a train, you have been in a in a in a library, and all those come together to form who you are. If we take that just sound bit, but we miss out that story that came from a person who had this and, this and this and this and this and this experiences, which shaped the way he responded to one thing. And so I think without the patience, without the time, we want to look for that. And because of mass production because of so many competing interests, it is easier to settle for that short episode. The soundbite. The soundbite. But does it fulfill you? Yeah. No, you keep going for more and more. And if you're a marketing person, that's the best thing.
0: That's also interesting because the soundbite never holds. No. Uh, it's instantly gratifying, but it slips away. Yes. And, and it's un, unsatisfying in yes. the long term. Yes. Right.
1: So that's how I can remember Clifford Geert's piece
0: yeah.
1: from... 20, 30 years ago. And it's still very, very vivid as p- as a piece that takes me to uh, Indonesia, yeah, a place I've never been to, but I can, even to date, I can still see it. That's the, the endurance of a good listener and a
0: good storyteller. So if Gears, for example, was um, making a call for a thick description, for describing things in depth, um, and attending to things, things in depth, can we say that you're also making a call for a deep listening or a yes. thick listening? Yes, um,
1: and, and not worry too much
0: about the answers, but about the process.
1: Because if the process is right, the answers come out. Sometimes we go in looking for answers, and because we want a certain kind of an answer, when we hear it, or we hear bits that show up as if they are the answer, then we grasp on them and lose the entire other part yeah. that would have complicated that answer.
0: You, you make me think of, of um, I think in psychoanalysis that says we need fantasies of each other mm. to be able to live with each other in everyday life because if we knew each other in our full complexity, we would be unbearable to yes. each other or something like that. Yes. The, probably that's exaggerated, but maybe there is something to be said about this openness. Um, if we listen Thickly, deeply, whatever we want to call it, doesn't that also come with the realization that neither you nor I are fully formed subjects, that we form and keep forming each other by listening to each other? And isn't that also unsettling for some?
1: It is unsettling because we have imagined a world where we have answers and the answers come in neat packages. It's not good for us to have ambiguity it's not good for us to have competing uh, meanings. It's good for us to have closure. It's good for us to see uh, structures that are predictable. And the minute that turns and becomes something else, we are uncomfortable with it. That's how uh, we as human beings uh, wonder, oh, I didn't know, oh, he or she could have done that. Because we expect a certain kind of person who's a certain kind of way in certain kinds of places. And then they become themselves because we didn't see and listen to the other part. And we are astonished that this has happened. But if we accept that the life of a human being is both complex and messy, it allows us to be a little bit more gracious and even careful with our own identities and how we see others.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I wonder if we would we could even go as far as to say that not accepting ambiguity is itself deadly. It makes me think of Padu rice His dead certainty It's an article he published somewhere and he makes a case that in in violence um, um between various communities. It is what's at stake is also this unbearableness of of ambiguity. Yes. I need to know who's the foreigner and who belongs to to yes. us. Yes. Um, and in that sense, that certainty can be established through violence, drawing the line.
1: Right? Because violence has a sense of overcoming. It 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 responds to something that we cannot control. So we want to use force and 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 control. To make our paths easier and manageable. Because who who can deal with ambiguity when we want certainty? And we are rewarded for certainty, you know. Um, even in, in, in school, we think of examinations, for instance. This person comes in, and I always tell my students that when we look at you and we assess you based on a day's work of what you could remember from I don't know, three months ago. We have shortchanged you because that is not who you are. Yeah. You know, summative or progressive testing are two different things. So, They're... in life, if we just take this one, I want to know who are you? Where are you coming from? That's what. That's why a DNA test makes us look exactly. foolish. Exactly. You know, because then you see, oh, I have some part of EBO, I have some part <laughs> of you know uh, this and that, and you wonder what is this pure.
0: So on the one hand, it's this gratifying having an exam that established the certainty of having evaluated one in a particular way, a DNA that have is, has established the essence of somebody in a particular way. And yet at the same time, we were just saying, this is so elusive. Yes. The more you do it, the more you need to do it. Yes. Um, the same with violence. Yeah.
1: And I think, I think there's something we learn from science. Um, the ability to always question the results. And I think... Even within science now, we know the sociology of science tells us there are so very few experiments can be that can be replicated.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, so even the certainty that we we are we attach certain scientific uh, processes are constantly being challenged. I think it's good to live without ambiguity. Um, I once saw an interview of Chinua Achebe, and he said, uh, "Among the Igbo, they they believe that you cannot have one." and only one way. There's always some other way. And I think that's a good philosophy to look at when we think of listening, when we think of ethnography, imagining the good life that we want. It can come in multiple
0: ways. And in terms of belonging, because then we don't have to all belong based on one set of conditions. or. um, Minda, if we were to take a step back and think across your work, I mean, this is the, what you're calling for in this article on listening is by no means exceptional. It, it seems to me a through line mm-hmm. through your work. On the one hand, you've spent so much time doing ethnography on orality, on music, on hip hop performance, <clears throat> even language. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you spent so much time um, writing about the production of knowledge, particularly in anthropology and the social sciences. Um, and I wonder if listening is, for you, something that you cumulatively came to because of these two interests that to some extent might also be bridged now through mm-hmm. through listening.
1: I think as I've reflected on that, I found that there's a thread that cuts through my work, and it's basically saying have you looked at the other side for instance um when i started with uh, gender performance and and um and swahili culture I, I was i was in school when there was a lot of discourse on uh muslim women and how they are mistreated and uh and the veiling and restrictions and all that and i wondered what would be the position of a Muslim woman in response to some of these conversations
0: yeah. and these were these were discourses by East African nationalisms Christian nationalisms, nationalisms and
1: also West Western Western, sort of discourse. Western discourses yeah. and I thought what would be the one thing where such conversation would be mediated without feeling threatened and I go, I'll go into music and so I went to tarab music yes. music, predominantly performed for a women audience in weddings. And because it had come into the public domain and was being recorded and played, I used that as an entry into the the work. And you find that it's a very different conversation. And so we can't just stick with this one conversation. There are other conversations going on and they need to meet at some point and create some mess so that we can remove our uncertainty. Then there was another conversation on globalization. And a lot of um, African social scientists, were: it is evil, it is terrible, it's all this. And I said, I understand all that. But what about the young people who, for the first time, are able to use global processes to enter into public discourses where they were excluded, to start certain uh, livelihoods where they have control, especially music. And you could tell, you know, when they got into music, younger people were more uh, the ones who were making money out of sort of this process. And then um, there was a book I wrote in the, on, on, on uh, Christianity, and there was all this, you know, Christianity is rising in Africa, and it's the new center of Christianity. And I said, how is Christianity changing the lives of the people? Is it just numbers, or is it something that is changing them. So I've always found myself looking for an alternative to what we consider to be the mainstream. And it's because there are certain things I'm hearing that are not in the main discourse.
0: Can I ask, would I be correct to say that um, you're not necessarily saying, okay, let's abandon the frame completely, like globalization, a nationalism, um, discourses about women. in But you say, let's emphasize elsewhere, let's listen elsewhere, and suddenly the whole frame might look differently. Yes,
1: yes. The frame has a very different identity when it has three or four strands that are not always agreeing with each other. It becomes less oppressive. It makes us as human beings more humble and allows us to pursue multiple ways of meaning. And I think that that has been for me very, very important
0: it's it's the the humility of it, the the humbleness. um, but as you said before, also the time and the patience and the cultivating of a certain kind of bodily position to know and to learn uh, in in a humble way. Mm-hmm. um and one wonders um because the alternative has also been let's get away with the frame. Um, there is nothing to yeah. be, i the whole frame is corrupted um, just because I see it corrupted from this point of view, I don't know, Christianity or globalization, as you said, with, with some of your interlocutors or colleagues. Um, but that's, isn't that a bit easier to do? Yeah. Is the gratification there not an instant one, like a soundbite, as you yes. said.
1: Yes, yes. It is easier for us to say, let's do away with this.
0: Yeah.
1: But we fall into the same trap of seeking
0: one thing and one thing that is certain. Because the outside is also shaped yes. by our ways of listening, yes. our ways of knowing. Um, Absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. So we can't get, get rid, we can embellish it with possibilities that are not there yeah. and leave it open-ended. But we like closure, we like certainty, and it's a go- it's going against the grain, which is very, very hard yeah. in human life.
0: It was so important in terms of how we as teachers educate others, how we educate the wider public, mm-hmm. and our responsibilities, not just as anthropologists, but as citizens citizens of the world, of various places, and mm-hmm. so on. Maybe just in the last few minutes we have left, um, to dwell a bit more on that question what kind of citizens do we become? And in your article, you draw on the phrase by Stephen William Foster. Uh, listening as conviviality, to reflect on this power of listening, um, uh, its power to social life. What does listening as conviviality mean and what does it teach us um, by way of how we participate or should participate in our worlds today?
1: That, that, I think, comes from a position where you're seeing others as creative. You're seeing others as unbounded, you're seeing others as able to influence you and shape the way you've always seen life. When we listen well, we learn from other places as they learn from us. It becomes, it becomes a relationship where we are both seeking to become better. And I can't become better myself. I can only become better because of who you are and what you tell me. If we have that kind of mode, that kind of posture, without assuming that I come in with knowledge, I come, with, come in with experience, but that you, no matter who and where you're placed, you have something to offer me. It gives me a sense of acceptance and a sense of self-doubt that is necessary for me to learn. For citizens, I think we, uh, we in the university sector is to teach students that kind of humility, Mm. of uncertainty and always struggling with the things that think they know and telling them the more they know, the more they know they don't know. You know? And that allows us to say, uh, and, and I come from a culture where it's very unlikely that a professor will say, I don't know. <sighs> what would happen if you did that? A student asks a question and says, you know what? I don't know, but give me some time. Let me go find out it changes the way they look at you and the way they look at knowledge. And I think that is very, very critical. For us as citizens, is to live with others knowing that we are only seeing one side yeah. of the universe. They are seeing another. And when we bring them, we see a wider world if we bring them together without hierarchy, without thinking that I know more. And I think that would be the best um, that we can do uh, when we undertake an ethnographic work because ethnographic gives us an opportunity to listen. But are we listening to write, to respond, or to learn? That's the choice we make.
0: Wanda, you UK yeah. us so much to think about. Such important questions and lessons about humility, patience, and ways of listening that pursue deep understanding uh, rather than uh, immediate, some immediate form of enjoyment. Um, And for all that, we're very thankful to you. Um, To our audience who is interested in um, learning more about um, some of the topics we discussed, we encourage you to pick up um, Mwendan Tarangui's books um, and read further.